Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 52. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. And then also in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in the series today called God Is, and we're looking at those characteristics of God that cannot be uh, applied to anyone else. All right, so God is compassionate, and so are people, and uh, uh, God is powerful, and so are people. But these characteristics in this series that we will look at to describe God uh, are characteristics that can only be attributed to him. And this morning, we're looking at God's omnipresence. Uh, the ability of God to be everywhere at all times in the same intensity with the, with the same um, uh, capacity that when God is omnipresent, it doesn't mean that he's got presence everywhere, but uh, part of it is here, part of it is there. If uh, you're in a life group, uh, you're going to love this week's study as you dig deeper into this uh, reality of the omnipresence of God. Uh, I've been in a lot of airports, mostly mission trips, uh, uh, and and I've been typically, as I'm coming in, uh, the one that the family is waiting for, right? And so they're there. I've been in another country uh, sometimes, you know, for a long time, and you come out, and there your family is, and they're waiting, and they're excited to see you, and you're excited to see them, and their hugs and kisses and, and uh, uh, all of that good stuff. But then there's the other side of the airport. It is when and you say your goodbyes, and at that point, there are tears uh, oftentimes. Maybe a mom or a dad uh, is sending their son or daughter to serve in the military, and they're saying a long goodbye. And those tears are very real. They, they, they go deep depending on the danger, perhaps, of the trip or the, long, the length of the trip. Well, we see two reactions to Jesus' ascension that are quite fascinating. One we looked at last week, and then we'll look at the other uh, from Luke. Uh, two different pictures. Jesus said to her, this is Mary Magdalene, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, let me uh, just make a point there, uh, because some people believe that maybe Jesus ascended 
ended sometime between that conversation with Mary Magdalene and when uh, J- Thomas was able to touch him. And so they struggle with that. But let me just kind of give you perspective. When Jesus was born and Jesus began his ministry, he began, in a sense, dying before he died. You say, what do you mean? He would talk repeatedly, I must go, I must go. Even as a kid, I must be about my father's business. Jesus had his eyes set on the cross. So Jesus was born to die and he died to resurrect and he resurrected to ascend. And so when he says he is ascending, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right then. It means I'm in ascending mode. All right. So if you talk to my wife, she says along about 9 p.m. on Saturday night, I hit, she calls it preacher mode. And she says between 9 p and about 1 p, 9 p on Saturday and 1 p on Sunday, I know not to ask you anything. Nothing of any value because your mind starts to turn. And when it does, she says she can tell. If we're visiting folks, she'll look over at me and she'll kind of nod. And she knows I'm done right? Because in my mind, I'm getting ready to go preach. I hit preaching mode. I don't preach until 9.30 on Sunday morning. Well, I practice every Sunday morning about 7.30, but, uh, but 9.30 is when I'm coming in here, but I hit preaching mode. Jesus is saying I'm in ascending mode. My next job is to ascend, so don't touch me. So Mary just wants to cling to him, but then look at Luke. 50 days pass, and then this happens at the end of Luke. And he led them, the disciples, Jesus leads the disciples out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they what? They worshiped him. They worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great sadness. No. What did they do? They returned to Jerusalem with great what class? joy. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple mourning the loss of Jesus. No. Isn't it this interesting? They were continually in the temple blessing God. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. So this is why I've given my sermon what appears to be a heretical title, Five Reasons I'm Glad Jesus Left. Five reasons I'm glad Jesus left. And I'm convinced by the time we're finished, you'll, you'll embrace these reasons as well. All right, so, so what, what are they? Reason number one, because he went to prepare a place for us. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? All right, so Jesus has gathered the disciples. He is beginning to give, him, give them more details of his death, and they are worried. They're afraid. They followed him for three years. Peter uh, no longer fishes. He's simply a follower of Christ. Matthew no longer collects taxes. He's abandoned all of that to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, and they are scared. They are afraid. Why? I mean, you would be too. But he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He equates himself with God there. In my Father's house are many rooms. The old King James says mansions. Rooms is a better translation. Why? Well, here's what would happen. Just think of this for a moment. Those of you who have adult children especially. But here's how it worked in the day, right? In Jesus' day, when you got married, if you were a groom, you went to your Father's house and you built a room onto his house for you and your new bride. 
All right, so you built a room onto your father's house for you and your new bride. And literally, day of wedding, you got married, right? Everybody's celebrating. You get married. Before there's any kind of reception, you carry her into this room. As everybody waits outside, you consummate the marriage. You come outside, and everybody celebrates. And guess what? Mom and dad have a new room on their house and a whole new family living in their house. Aren't you glad we don't do that still today? You never get rid of them. I mean, I mean, they're just there to stay, right? Kids are there to stay. Well, I've been to Capernaum and there's the remains of a village. And I looked at that village with this scripture kind of tucked away in my mind. And I looked at that village and sure enough, you see all these little rock walls and these little additions built on just these houses now bump into one another because of all of these additions. So what is Jesus saying? Oh, they got this. They knew, they knew, right, the custom. So these guys, Paul would later, uh, you know, bring this out. Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. You are the bride. And listen, my father has got plenty of rooms. And I'm going, though, because I've got to prepare room for you. Uh, Peter, you've got a room now, and, and James, you've got a room, and John, you've got the room. I've, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? Because that's what every good groom does for his bride. I'm going to prepare a place for my bride. And do you know last Sunday, Kevin, uh, Jesus said, hey, carpenters, get it ready. We've got to have a room for Kevin now right? Kevin has come in. We got to have a room for him. Imagine the size of heaven. Imagine the expansion of heaven. Imagine the construction that's been going on since that day as thousands and millions of people from all walks of life and from all over the globe have come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when this is all over, Revelation describes it as one big giant marriage between us and Christ. And there will be a reception called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Oh, I'm so glad Jesus left. Why? Because he went to prepare a place for me. He went to the father's house and when I as a 15 year old receive Christ we got to make room for him wow secondly I'm glad Jesus left because he gave us a job to do oh, you've got to let this sink in John 14 12 truly truly I say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do what because I'm going to the father this is a puzzling and troubling statement all right Jesus is saying that that those who believe in him will do greater works than he did. All right, so here's the difficulty. I have never witnessed anybody rise from the dead. But Jesus, sure enough, called Lazarus out, and immediately Lazarus came forth. I remember interviewing for a job years and years ago up in Ohio. I, I hopped on a plane in Greenville, Spartanburg, flying up to uh, Ohio. It was one of those little planes, right? You get on and you pray the whole time. Because it looks like something you could have put together, you know. And so I'm on this plane, and sure enough, a storm comes. And this storm is rocking this plane all over the place. I mean, it's just the most turbulence I've ever been in. But, you know, it never occurred to me to stand up and say, peace be still. And the storm stopped, and everybody in the plane just bowed down and worshiped me. 
well, how is it that I will do greater works than Christ? I don't think any of us have ever walked on water. But here we sit, and, and Jesus said, greater works than these you will do. I love what Art Azurdia says about this. He says, the greater works Jesus refers to are the conversions of people and the advancement of the gospel. So let me share something with you. Uh, my students in my um, New Testament class know this. We talk about this day two. Jesus covered a territory no more than 120 miles north to south and uh, no more than at its widest 60 to 70 miles. That was it. That's all he covered. But the first day Peter preached in Acts, we get this list. Many nationalities were represented. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. And they said, we hear them preaching, telling their own tongues the mighty works of God. Peter preaches and they all understand in their own language. Wow. Jesus never did that. His influence never extended beyond the borders of Palestine. When Peter preached that day, 3,000 were converted. Well, in all of Jesus' ministry, maybe 120. Maybe 120 converted to his following after three years, right? I don't think Jesus would be featured in chapter 1 of church growth manual, would he? Only 120 people. Greater works you will do than these. Greater works. There's a legend which recounts the return of Jesus to glory after his time on earth. And so the angel Gabriel approached him and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly from men down there. I did, he said, and continued Gabriel, do they all know about you, uh, how you love them and what you did for them? And he says, oh no, Jesus said, not yet. Right now, only a handful in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed then what have you done to let everyone know of your love for them? Jesus said, I've asked Peter, James, and John and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will in turn tell others who will in turn tell others and it will eventually spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Gabriel frowned, looked rather skeptical. He knew well what poor stuff men were made of. He said, yes, Jesus, but what if Peter and and, and James and John, what if they get discouraged? What if others forget? What if the message isn't told? Is there a plan B? Jesus said, no. There is no plan B. The plan A is them, and then it is us. If you sit here this morning and you say, Jerry, I really don't know what God wants me to do with my life. Could I tell you? I could tell you right now. He wants you to share him with someone else. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. The, he, he has not professionalized this. It isn't my job, nor is it Billy Graham's job, uh, nor any other great evangelist to, to evangelize the world. It is yours. There is no plan B. Uh, we'll dig into this later. It's rich stuff, Ephesians 4, 8 through 12. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led uh, hosts of captives. I'll, I'll deal with that. But look at the bottom. And he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So I'm glad Jesus left because now I have a job to do. And so do you. No believer should ever flounder over God's purpose for your life. We have a job to do. Third reason I'm glad Jesus left is because the helper is with me all the time. Look at this. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things. It's Jesus talking to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask where you're going. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Look at this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. All right. So Jesus says, I'm leaving. And when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. And I have to leave in order for him to come as the helper to do his work. So this word helper, let me give you, seldom do this, the word in the Greek, but I think it will help make sense of it. It's parakaleo. All right, so para means uh, beside or with. And kaleo, it sounds like the English word, means to call, to call alongside. The Holy Spirit is one who is called alongside us in this journey called life. All right, so he is the one, that word capital H, helper, called alongside to help us. So if he sends a helper, now let's be super logical, that means we need what, church? Help. All right, so we only get a helper because we need what? Help. We need help. All right, so I know that's kind of hard for some of you type A people to admit. I'm not one of you at all. That's a lie. All right, so, so we need help. We need help, so we have help. But what do we need help with? Jesus outlines it right here. So if Jesus outlined it, I want to tune in and say, okay, Jesus, what do you say we need help with? To convict the world of sin. All right, so the helper convicts the world of sin. All right, so it's interesting when I had lunch with Kevin and Leah this week, and we were talking, and Kevin's telling me a story. All right, so Kevin's story of coming to Christ, as he shared on the screen, was a series of events where different people were involved in sharing with him at different levels. But ultimately, it was the Spirit who convicted him of his sins and made him aware that he needed help. I can't do that. It isn't my job to convict you of your sin. I'm not that good. I'm not that smart. Um, I have too much sin of my own for me to call yours out. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Number two, concerning righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to the Father. So think about this. So I don't want to dash completely the WWJD movement. What would Jesus do? But really, we should be asking, Holy Spirit, what are you telling me to do? You say, Jerry, what do you mean? So when the helper comes uh, to help, he comes on the inside. All right, so let's imagine this world without the spirit for a moment, without the helper, and, and we got Jesus alive. So if you need counsel, if you need advice, fly wherever he happens to be, stand in line and wait. Ask your question. 
and get your answer. And hopefully the line isn't too long and you haven't waited so long that your problem is now passed by the time you get to him. But since he left, he said, if I don't leave, he can't come in the way he needs to. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And that spirit gives life to your mortal body. That's not a resurrection verse there. That's a now verse. Gives life to your mortal body right now. And so when you need to make a decision on anything in life, guess what? The Holy Spirit is with you, guiding, advising, giving you counsel now. That's why Matthew 28, 20, Jesus can say, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, concerning judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. We'll talk about this more, but Satan's sentence is doomed. Uh, Satan's days are numbered. They are. We don't know the number, but God does, doesn't he? We don't know how many days Satan has left, but God does. Satan doesn't even know, in case you're wondering. He, he's not um, uh, omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but God knows his days are numbered. So when was that pronounced? Wow. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. You've got to just kind of hang a theological peg in this verse. Genesis 3.15, called the first good news right? The first good news in theology. What is Genesis 3.15? Adam and Eve have blown it. God has come walking in the garden as he always did, and he pronounces a curse on the serpent. And when he does, he says, behold, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. I don't have time to preach a whole sermon on that. I can preach a whole series on that one verse. But the woman is clear. That's a definite article uh, that foreshadows Mary. It foreshadows Christ. This is the first good news. What's going to happen? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, so how does a serpent bruise somebody's heel? Well, it was a snake bite. Will that kill someone? Not, de- not necessarily. But as I've said before here, a good crushing blow to the head of a snake and he's done. So on the cross, uh, Satan bruised Jesus' heel. But three days later, on the, uh, when Jesus resurrected, uh, Jesus crushed Satan's head. Amen? And he's done for. His days are numbered. That's the first good news in Scripture, Genesis 3.15. All right, so since that, Jesus says that he is the judge. Um, Fourth reason, because Jesus led captive, a host of captives. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I asked the same question in my study this week. What are you talking about? Let me read it for you, for you. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Well, I love Paul. Paul is so stinking brilliant, isn't he? And so Paul goes to quote Psalm 68 here. Well, if you ever uh, look at any commentary on the Psalms, once you get to Psalm 68, any decent uh, commentary is going to tell you it is the most difficult Psalm to understand in all of the Psalms. Well, thank you, Paul, for choosing something easy to quote. 
All right, so we got to figure out Psalm 68 in order to figure out Ephesians 4, in order to figure out what in the world happened when Jesus ascended. All right, so hang with me. This is where I have to sit up straight, right? Say this to my students sometimes. We're, we're diving down deep, all right? Oxygen on, we're going down deep. So what in the world happened? So in Psalm 68, most scholars believe that that is about Moses. Moses ascended a mountain, did he not? And when he ascended the mountain, what did he ascend the mountain to get? The Ten Commandments, the law, and the glory came down. And when Moses came down off the mountain, did he give gifts to men? Yes, he did. What was the gift that Moses gave to the people? The law of God, right? The law of God. So you've got the ten that summarize, the ten that summarize all of the Ten Commandments. Moses gave that law. All right, so Moses did that. That's Psalm 68 in a very, very tiny nutshell. So what in the world then is Paul saying that Jesus did? Well, there's another image that has to be in Paul's mind. All right, so back in that day when a king went to war, something tremendous happened. So he'd go to war, and if he was victorious, he would come back, and the city streets would be lined with people. And the king would come through the city gate, right? The streets are lined with people. They're ready to welcome their king. And as he comes in, and the people begin to applaud and yell and scream uh, for their king, right? Who has been victorious in line behind him are the captives. These are the POWs. These are the people he has captured. They're in chains. Their heads are bowed. And the crowd jeers, right? They celebrate the victorious king. The crowd jeers at the POWs that the king has captured. So, based on Paul's insight here, what we can gather from this is that when Christ ascended, heaven's gates opened. These angels who had been silent at his death now line the streets of heaven and the king re-enters. And when he does, he is not wearing a crown of thorns. No, he re-enters and the angels who have only worshipped him, who have only sung to him, begin to sing. And when they do, who are the captives? Who are the ones who, are, who metaphorically their heads are down? Satan, sin, and death. Satan because his days are numbered. Sin because on the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin on himself. And death because through the resurrection, we are promised a brand new life. And so there you see the marching of the procession. And Christ, as he brings, comes victorious into heaven after he ascended. It is a remarkable scene. A remarkable scene. So Satan only has limited power. You see, when we talk about the attributes of God, it brings into clearer focus the attributes of others other than him. Satan only has limited power. He also only has limited presence. Don't forget that. He can only be one place at a time. Yeah, he has demons that do his bidding, but he can only be one place at a time. Sin for the believer shall not reign in your life unless you let it. 
So when you sin, it's because you want to. It's because you enjoy it. It's nobody's fault but yours as a believer. Death. Well, I've walked my 17th year here. I have walked through death with so many of you. I've been with you when you've said goodbye. And some of these have been traumatic and others have been kind of like a relief. The suffering has ended, the pain is over, and everybody in the room is like, ah. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death, where is your sting? I wonder if the angels sang that. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Fourth reason I'm glad Jesus left is because he led captive, a host of captives. Last year I read Bonhoeffer by Metaxas, that biography, amazing. And one of the things I liked about it is that is that Metaxas kind of delved deep at times into the history of uh, of the war, and you saw some insights into the war. In 2011, the Atlantic did a, just a special on the, the atrocity uh, of the uh, Second World War, but they did some great pictures on the ending. And I wanted to share these. Maybe they give you some idea of the sweet victory that can follow such a war. Look at this first picture. These are allied prisoners who have just been told that they... Um, the war is over, and they're free now to go home. They're getting their things together. Look how emaciated their bodies are. Check out this next picture. Uh, this is in Moscow, and these are, uh, these are Russian soldiers who have just returned home after the war has ended, being greeted by their families. Look at this next one. It's hard to see, but there's an AP-47. See that, uh, uh, that bomber there? Uh, it's just doing a low flyover, but what is underneath is the house of Hitler. It was his retreat, his getaway that had been bombed and was now in ruins. Uh, look at this next one. I love this picture. All right, so these are the Nuremberg trials, but I want you to look up. There's a box to the right. See the guy with his hand on his head, light-colored suit, wearing dark glasses, that's Hitler's right-hand man. All the men lined up beside him, uh, the, the, the guards in the back with the white uh, helmets on, all the men behind him, lined up beside him were Hitler's men who committed the atrocities and they're being tried. But this is the picture that gets at it to me the most. Look at those Nazi flags. This is the Russian army saying, you lost and they dropped their flags down, saying, you lost. Well, when you look at that, I imagine this is, a, is in some way how heaven must have felt when Christ entered. I just imagine in some way this is how heaven must have felt. Final reason I'm glad, because Jesus represents me and you before God in heaven. All right, we got to... Uh, kind of pause here a moment and I want this to sink in since then 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. All right, so let me talk to you for a moment. Since coming to Christ, there has been more than one time when I felt like I was dangling by a thread. Like, like I wasn't holding fast. And I know in this room are those who feel the same way. Perhaps it's your marriage that has gotten you to this place of of questioning God or perhaps it's a failed relationship and you're single again. Uh, Maybe it is an addiction that gets gets at you. And right now you think, I am all alone. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Perhaps you have a son or a daughter who is rebellious and they're doing their own thing, walking according to their ways. And you think, ah, nobody knows what I'm going through. Let me keep reading. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to what? Say the word, sympathize who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of what church need. Not just in case those times ever come, but when those times of need come, we have one who has been tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And so we can draw near, we can approach, not timidly, not fearfully, not shyly, but confidently. We can come to the throne, the very throne of God, And find grace to help in our time of need. Why? Because he knows. He's been there. He knows what we're going through. He knows what it is to be human. He knows it. He's experienced it. He's walked in your shoes. He's, He's sweat your sweat. He's shed your blood. He's seen your pain. As a matter of fact, uh, someone said when Christ got back to heaven, the angels certainly had to adjust the song. Why? Because this, their Savior who died was, res- our Savior who died was resurrected, but he had been and living the life of a man. So, so it's got to make you wonder this. If you love Jesus, all these reasons, right? We're glad he's gone and, and we're glad the Spirit's here. We're glad that Jesus ascended. If you love him, you've got to wonder, well, how is he doing? You say, Jerry, what do you mean? I've yet to do, to walk through death with a family where a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister will not look at me and say, how do you think he is? Do, do you think 
do you think my mom's okay now? How is she? So, so if you love Jesus this morning, don't you want to know how is he now? Don't you want to know? So I went digging, and the rest of my remarks I give credit to Millard Erickson, dug deep into my old theology text. When Jesus ascended, he left behind the conditions associated with life on this earth. No more pain. Aren't you glad? No more physical pain or psychological pain. No more opposition, hostility, unbelief, and unfaithfulness which he encountered. All of these have been replaced by the praise of the angels and the immediate presence of the Father. They like him there. He is the center of attention. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, well and good, and the songs are being sung. Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him. Remember when he was baptized and a voice came from heaven and said what? Behold my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. Well, I've, I've got to think in my hopefully sanctified imagination of this that when Christ ascended, that heaven was waiting and the Father said, look, 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 there he is. There's my son and with him I am well pleased. And the song emerged and the angels sang and the place burst forth with joyful adoration of the one who had come and bled and died and resurrected and ascended and was now in heaven. Amen? I've just got to think that in heaven, in heaven, he's good. He's good. He's so very good. Oh, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The father Erickson says the angels have resumed their song of praise for the Lord of heaven has returned What a contrast to the abuse and insults he endured while on earth. Yet the song of praise now goes beyond that which was sung before he's come into earth. For a new verse has been added. Jesus has done something which he had not previously done. Personally experienced and overcome death. Jesus' humanity is a perfected humanity of the type which we will have after our resurrection. He is still human, but it imposes no limitations upon his deity. Just as our bodies will have many of their limitations removed, so it has been with the perfect glorified humanity of Jesus, which continues to be united with his deity. And so Jesus will forever exceed what you and I will ultimately be. 
So, I must confess, as a kid, I'd hear the preacher preach about heaven and how long it was going to be, and I thought, wow, that might get boring. No lie. Don't sit there in your religious smugness. You've thought it too. I thought it might get boring. But Jesus is now perfect humanity with perfect deity. I'll never be deity. I'll be at that time perfect humanity. And you know what that means? Is that if I could see him right now, a few things I'd like to ask him about. No lie. Like just a few things. And and I know many of you are where I am, but I'm growing so much in my walk with the Lord. Like I'm learning so much about him. I am just, just things. I don't, why in the world didn't you know that then? I just didn't know it then, but I'm learning it now. And do you know heaven's going to be like that? Don't think that you're going to have all the knowledge zapped into you when you get there. I just think I'll have a conversation with Jesus and maybe since we know each other, we'll hang out and I'll say, well, this is what he said to me. And we'll talk about it and we'll come up with a few more questions. We're like, let's go back. It's not like we'll run out of time. We've got all the time to do it when we come back and then, gosh, the, the songs will strike up and when they do, we'll sing them with greater clarity. And no lie, I can't wait for that. I cannot wait to see him. I have no clue what I'll do. Like maybe it's just some awkward high five or fist bump or I don't know. I can't wait to see him. So what do we do until then? You do what you always do before the real game. You practice. We're going to stand up. We're going to practice. Let's sing to him right now the words of this song.